Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they, became, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus said, and called, to them, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant." And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus, son of Naz Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up. And came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks, brother. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the way you use it in our hearts. Thank you for the power it has, um, not because of anything, any skill that we have, but because of your authority over all things. Thank you for the way that you, uh, through your son, you spoke sight to this man, Bartimaeus. God, we pray for that same kind of miracle spiritually 
that you would speak sight into our lives, that you would open our eyes to see you, that our hearts would not, be, uh, would not continue in their blindness, but God, that you would give us eyes to see you for who you are, that we, that we may worship you and follow you all the days of our life. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give you a different title for today's message than the one that's in your bulletin. I'm going to call it uh, Three Blind Men. Three Blind Men, not unlike the nursery rhyme where there's not one, but two, not two, but three blind mice. Today, our passage is not just about one blind person, one blind man, but about three blind men. And so this morning, I, I want to start with an eye test for you. Don't worry, it's not like the eye test where you got the big letter and the little letters. This is a, more like an optical illusion test to see if your eyes can see this. And so uh, if you don't, don't tell people what you can see if you can see this, but I want you to think, I want you to begin to describe in your mind what you can see when you see this picture. And so after you've had a minute to look at it, maybe so that you can commit to this, whisper it to the person next to you. What do you, what do you see in the picture here as you're looking at this image? As you're describing, I'll tell you what I see. I see a bearded man with some unkempt hair and kind of a funky nose, right? Is that what you see? Or do you see something else? I'll give you a clue just so that we can hurry things along. You may see that, and you may also see something in the middle. There's a woman who is sitting, facing the other direction, facing out. And so if you're looking at it that way, instead of a mouth, that's a little tree stump below her. And she's not looking at two eyes. She's looking at two little huts. And the man's unkempt hair is kind of a, a dead tree branch. You see how it's both things at the same time? So now if I go back, take off that, that hint, even without the clue, now you can see both of them, right? Once you see it, you can't not see it. You may not have seen it at first. I'm not real smart at these things, so I had to get the little red circle clue before I saw it. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. Today, I want to talk about your eyesight. I want to talk about how good your vision is. Can you see what's really there? I'm not inventing something today or any day. My goal is never to invent something, just to show you the Word of God. And in this case, show you Jesus, which is, again, my job every day. Uh, but we, I, want, I want you to see something that's really there. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see who He is. And I pray, my, my, my conviction here is that if you really see Jesus, if you really see Him for who He is, you won't unsee Him. You, you will, your life is changed by seeing Jesus. So that's our goal, is that you would see Jesus today. We're walking through Mark's gospel account of Jesus' life. And we come to a section that I'm claiming has three blind men in it. They are not blind in the same way, however. One man, Bartimaeus, was blind physically. But then two other men, two disciples, James and John, were blind spiritually. And so today I want to ask about not just your physical eyesight. I want to ask about your spiritual eyesight. Is your, are you spiritually blinded? Or spiritually, do you have eyes to see what's truly in front of us. The Bible frequently uses these kind of images, these metaphors about sight and blindness and seeing and light and darkness. And the healing, the physical healings from blindness, much like the healings from hearing or lameness, are many times about more than just the physical. Jesus is making a spiritual point to His disciples and those around Him about a healing that He is able to do to give us eyes to see Him for who he is. So my question for you is, have you been healed like Bartimaeus? We, we don't have the rest of Bartimaeus' story, but I, I'm, I feel like I'm on pretty solid ground to assume 
he didn't go back to being a blind man the next day, you know? Once Jesus gave him eyes to see, he, he could see for the rest of his life. Has God opened your eyes? Has he let you see him for who he is? These paragraphs that surround Mark, uh, uh, I mean, surround this, these, these miracle and these stories here, uh, tell us the story of three blind men, but of course, they are not the central point of the story. Jesus is. He always is the central point of the story. And so somehow we, uh, as Christians, we somehow still miss that. We still miss seeing Jesus. And so I want to make sure we can focus our eyes, our attention, our mind on who Christ is. And I'm praying that we can see Jesus. If we can see Him, then perhaps we can follow Him. We can listen to Him. We can see where He wants to lead us. So where we're headed today is I want you to see Jesus, see our need, and then see an invitation. See Jesus, see our need, and then see an invitation. So here's what I want you to see about Jesus from Mark chapter 10. See the serving and suffering Son of Man. See the serving and suffering Son of Man. This is the third time in as many chapters in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus predicts what's going to happen to him at the end of his life. And this is the most descriptive yet. Mark 10, 33 and 34 says, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. It is hard to imagine Jesus being any more clear any more specific about exactly what's going to happen. This is a remarkably descriptive, I mean, precise description of what's going to come just a few chapters later and probably within a few weeks of this moment in Jesus' life. And yet, the disciples can't see it. They're blinded to it still. They don't understand what's happening. Now, this side of the cross and the resurrection, this side of, uh, of what Jesus has accomplished, it's obvious to us. We look back to the disciples over and over again, and we're like, how, how can you miss this? But I, I hope to, to maybe just, let's cut the disciples just a little bit of slack, because this category didn't exist yet. They didn't have a category for what Jesus was telling them was about to happen. He described himself as the Son of Man, and we have spent a little bit of time on that, but it's, it's worth us camping for just another moment on what this means. Literally, son of man just means a, a human, right? A, a, a male child born to humans. But you may notice in your English translations, most of them that I've checked, son of man is capitalized, capital S, capital M. That's because he's not just giving a, a general description about his humanity. This is a specific title. It's used throughout the Old Testament, but the most, the most direct quotation here is that when Jesus uses this description about himself, he is quoting Daniel chapter 7. And that chapter is worth camping in for just a moment. In Daniel chapter 7, hundreds of years before Christ, Daniel was given a vision, a prophecy, about who, one who was like a son of man. There's the phrase in Daniel 7, 7, 13 and 14. And he's talking about somebody who looks like a human, and yet he walks on, comes with the clouds. How can you be a human and yet transported on those fluffy things, right? So there's an indication this is more than just a regular human, and the indications get more. He says this man is presented, this son of man is presented to God himself, the ancient of days. And this son of man, he is given something spectacular. He is given a rule and a kingdom, a dominion over all peoples and nations and languages. So he rules over everything that there is. 
They're, they're, that's, that's all of the world. And his rule is not just for one generation. It says that his rule is an everlasting dominion. How could this person be a son of man? He looked human, be human, and yet reign forever. Daniel probably didn't have this category. The first people who heard Daniel's prophecy probably didn't have this category. Now this side of the cross and resurrection, we do have this category. He's describing somebody who is fully God and fully man. He looks human. He is human and yet reigns forever over all things. And so the first century Jewish world, the disciples, when they heard Son of Man, they know Daniel 7. And they know this is an incredible figure. And yet, what does Jesus say about this man? About himself, the Son of Man? He said he would be condemned to death, delivered over. He would be mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. And the disciples don't have that category in their minds. Maybe we can cut them as a little bit of slack that they, they don't quite see it because this didn't exist yet. They didn't understand what he was talking about. Jesus was telegraphing his next move. He wasn't hiding in any way, and yet it was still confusing to the first that heard it. Jesus is the king who reigns over all forever and ever. He is fully God and fully man. And yet he was telling about the path that he was going to take to get to that place. His path to glory his path of reigning over, to, to getting to the place of reigning over all peoples and nations and languages went through a very strange place. It went to a cross and it went to a tomb before it came to glory. Don't mistake, it did come to glory. And Jesus said it would, the end of verse 34, and after three days, he will rise. Again, the disciples didn't have a picture for this. They knew something about the resurrection and the end times. They didn't have a category for somebody rising and walking on earth with them once again. Jesus was on his way to glory, but his way of glory was going through a cross and through a tomb and then to an empty tomb and to glory. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the glorious one that Daniel 7 predicted. But they didn't realize that he was going to be the one that had to suffer in order to take that mantle. Verse 34 is very descriptive about the kind of suffering he would go through, the physical torture he would go on. Yes, it says he would be killed. Before that, it said he'd be flogged. So this is torture, not just a, an immediate death and not just a, 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 a small death. This, he's being murdered, killed. Not just that, Jesus is not just saying, yeah, one day I'm going to die. That's true for everybody. He was saying, I'm going to be murdered. And more than that, I'm going to be tortured. The suffering Jesus would endure was not just be physical. It would be that he was also shamed. He foretold that he would be mocked. He'd be spit on. The, the eternal king over all allows himself to be spit on, slapped, mocked, shamed. Jesus even describes that both Jews and Gentiles, he says religious leaders like chief priests and scribes would deliver him over. They deliver him over to the Gentiles. Both groups, that's like everybody. Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody. They're, almost everybody's going to reject him, he says. This is a pretty low, low. Not just, not just die, but murdered. Not just murdered, but tortured. Not just hated by some, but hated by almost all. This is a very low, low. But he also is talking about a very high, high. The Son of Man, in all his glory, would come to all his glory, but he went through a cross to get there. His glory, after three days that he would rise showed once and for all his kingship. This is the king. This is the one who reigns over all things. There is no other higher, more glorious being than Jesus himself. 
And he got there because of what he had just prophesied, just said was going to happen to him. Can you see this about Jesus? Do you have eyes to see his glory? Do you have eyes to see his majesty and his splendor? Do you have eyes and hearts that have been opened to see what he has given up for us? Do you see the one who could have foregone all of that, who could have skipped the cross, who could have skipped the spitting, the mocking, the shame, and yet did it out of love? Can you see Jesus for who he is? He is the suffering, he is the serving son of man. Verse 33 and 34 describe what happened, but then down in verse 45, he says why it happened. He says, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Ransom usually does not have a very positive connotation in our ears. We don't hear that positively. Simply enough, it is a payment made to redeem someone or something. So the idea of sin needing to be paid for, that's what he's talking about. There's, there's a payment that needs to be made. And that's not a very popular idea in our, in our world. We think, uh, you know, the world will say, hey, well, why can't Jesus just kind of, you know, God's God, can he just kind of make, make bad things go away? Can't he do that? We, we all know deep in us that bad things, you can't just make them go away. If one of my beloved children comes to your house today and picks up a baseball and throws it through your window, what are our options at that point? Somebody's got to pay for it. Either I'm going to pay for it, or you in all your kindness and grace say, no, no, I'm going to pay for it, and you pay for it, which would be great. Or there is a third option, right? You could just live with a broken window, but you're still paying for it, aren't you? You're paying for it because now bugs get in and out of your house, and the heat leaves when you want it to stay, and the cold comes in, and the, hot, the cold goes out when you want it to stay. You got a hole in your window, or you put a cardboard over it, and you're not listening to an eyesore or something. Not payment is not an option. Our sin, our misdeeds, our our rebuke of God has to be paid for. You can't not pay for it. Somebody's going to pay for it, us or him. And Jesus says, I came as a ransom. I came to make that payment for you. You may choose in our own world to kind of turn a blind eye to this idea, but sin must be paid for. And Jesus offered to pay for it. The concept of of substitution is captured by these two little words, ransomed for, ransomed for, in your place. Jesus went in your place. You and I deserve to be the ones on the cross. And Jesus said, I came to ransom for, in your place. That concept is very clearly and dramatically portrayed in all kinds of different ways, but one of our favorites around here is C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. I showed this little clip to the kids during Kidfinity worship today of, uh, of where Aslan says he's going to go in the place of this little boy, Edmund. Edmund was a traitor, and according to the, magic, the deep magic of the Narnian world, any traitor was supposed to be a part of the, the witch's kingdom. And so the, the Edmund deserved to be, to be killed. He deserved to go to the table. And there's this moment in the movie, and I don't remember how exactly it was written in the books. I just showed the kids this morning. But there's this moment where they're wondering, is Edmund going to die? And the, the lion announces, the, the witch has, has renounced her claim. But you see that Aslan's face is, is heavy. And you realize the only reason why the witch was willing to give, willing to give up Edmund and not kill him is that the, the, the lion went in, her, in his place. It was a substitution, ransomed for. Now, Aslan, uh, as C.S. Lewis, Lewis wrote him, and it, he's, just, he's telling a children's story, so I don't want to be too nitpicky. But it is, you, you, that story 
misses one glorious aspect of what Jesus really accomplished. Because in, in C.S. Lewis's version, the payment is made to the witch. But I want to tell you, it's more glorious than that. You and I, we owe the devil nothing. We do not owe the devil a penny. We have not offended the devil's commands. We have not broken his laws. We have offended God our Father. He is the one we owe. Our ransom, uh, the payment for our sins, must be paid to God. And God has said, I'll pay it for you. The same one who is owed the payment was willing to make the payment. God the Father sent God the Son in order for your sins to be paid for. And He did it to show you how glorious He is, to give you eyes to see His majesty and His splendor so that you would see Him, that you would be transformed by knowing Him. If you truly see Jesus, it changes everything. He has made a payment in your place in order that you would know Him. Can you see Jesus for who He is? If so, how do you, how do you respond to that? In part, that, that answer will come in how you see yourself. You see, you have to have eyes of faith to see Jesus, but you also need to have eyes of faith to see yourself for who you really are. Part of the spiritual vision is seeing both of those clearly, Jesus and ourselves. And on either side of Jesus' teachings in Mark chapter 10, we get blind people, accounts of blind people. Some see Jesus right and some don't. Verse 35, two of Jesus' type disciples, James and John, approach Him, and they start with a most audacious of request. Jesus, they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's like saying, please hand me a blank check, Jesus. I will write the amount in as I choose. I'm not Jesus. Praise God. I would have smote them <laughs> with lightning or something, right? That is a ridiculous thing for them to claim. And Jesus, in all of His grace and mercy, responds with a question. What do you want me to do for you? And Jesus is not giving in. He's not going to let them just pick and choose what they want. But like we see over and over again in Jesus, we've said this, I feel like, every week in Mark, when He responds to a question with a question, He's digging to the heart. So He says, What do you want me to do for you? They ask in verse 37, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. This is essentially the same discussion we saw in chapter 9 when they were arguing about who is the greatest. They think every ruler needs a vice president. Every ruler needs a secretary of state or a chief of staff. So James and John are vying for the positions of glory alongside Jesus. And to help us see just how spiritually blind they are, the very next account in Mark, right after Mark 10.45, is about a physically blind man. James and John are spiritually blind, but this physically blind man has better eyes than James and John. While Jesus was heading from Jericho to Jerusalem, this blind man called out, Jesus, son of David. He knows, Bartimaeus, this blind man knows, this is the one that is the fulfillment. He is the king who reigns over all, the prophesied one who would come from the line of David. He's the king. And if he's the king, he can do all things. And so Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus, son of David. He was physically blind, but he had eyes to see Jesus. And he asks, he, as, as Jesus comes to, as Jesus invites the blind man to come to him, hear what he says in verse 51. It's the exact same question he just asked James and John, word for word, in verse 36. Both times he asks, What do you want me to do for you? And if, if you're reading along, you're like, Jesus, he's blind. He's calling for you. Why do you need to ask? 
in part because he's telling his disciples, listen to how this man answers the question. He wants him to express the faith that Jesus can already see in him. Jesus wanted his disciples to make the connection. This man's physically blind and is about to ask for something better than you just asked for. And I want you to see your own spiritual blindness. They couldn't see. James and John couldn't see Jesus fully and they couldn't see themselves fully. But the blind man could see both. He could see how great Jesus is and he could see that he had a need. He could see that he was helpless and he needed somebody to help him. Bartimaeus knew that he, he was a needy person who needed to be saved, who needed to be healed, who needed to be rescued. And he, he found that in the Son of Man, the Son of David in Jesus. So if you can see Jesus clearly, I hope you can see yourself clearly. And to see that we need, our need, is we need to be served. The Son of Man came to serve. We need to be served. We need Him to serve us. We need Him to heal us. We need Him to save us. If you can see Jesus for who He is, you know He has the power to serve, the willingness, the love, the grace. If you can see yourself enough, clearly enough, you can see we need that. He's exactly what we need. James and John came hoping to get something from Him, to, to get a place, a place of power. This man came knowing he, he, needs, he needs help. He needs help. Jesus came, I wonder if you can see the same need that he could see, that, the, that Bartimaeus could see. We need to be healed. We need to be changed. We need, we need help. What they didn't calculate, what James and John didn't calculate, is they, they had the same need. They were spiritually needy people. It takes humility to recognize that you have a need, does it not? Many times it, it feels much better to help somebody than to be helped. It can be humiliating to need help. Many times it feels better to be the one that, that helps other people. But to admit we need help, that can be very hard. Now there is a place for, for service. We'll get to that. But one of um, President John F. Kennedy's most famous lines, I looked it up, came from his inaugural address, 1961. It's beautiful and a right idea. He says, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country, right? That is a, a good and noble ideal that we want to have a heart that wants to serve other people. In our, our, our world, our 21st century world, we are, we are such entitled people, right? We're always like, give me this, give me more, I, I need more, right? Somebody, somebody help me get out what I want. So we need to hear JFK's words. He's right. But before we can hear his words, you need to hear Jesus' words. And Jesus' words are, you don't have anything to serve other people until you've received you can't serve others until Jesus serves you. You need to be served first before you can serve others. Jesus is willing to save, willing to change, willing to sanctify. And that's what we need. The blind man could see what the disciples couldn't. And if you go through and compare them side by side, you'll see how much better the blind man's eyes worked than James and John's. The disciples, James and John, thought they were strong. The blind man knew he was weak. James and John, in their strength, they were full of pride. The blind man, in his weakness, had humility. The blind man had a physical blindness. James and John had a spiritual blindness. James and John asked for glory. The blind man asked for mercy. They asked for mercy. I hope you can see how these two stories mirror one another. 
They're on either side of Jesus' description about himself, about who he is, so that we can see our blindness and see that we need to be saved, we need to be healed, we need to be transformed. If Jesus asked you, what do you want me to do for you, how would you answer that question? Jesus asked it twice, one to James and John and one to Bartimaeus. How would you answer, what do you want me to do for you? Would you ask for more stuff, more glory, more success, more things of this world, status symbols, prosperity in some way? If so, you're blind to a deeper need you have. We need to be healed. We need to have eyes to see. We need to have a transformed heart. We need a heart transplant. We need Jesus to heal us, to save us. If you can see that Jesus is the suffering and serving Son of Man, then you would ask for Him to serve you. You'd ask for Him to heal you. Luke 12, Jesus tells a, a remarkable story. about that. It's talking about when Jesus is coming back. And he, he paints a picture that is almost hard to hear. Because it seems, how could this be true? But He says, blessed are those, Mark, this is a Luke 12, 37, blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when He comes. That's talking about when Jesus comes back. His says, truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Do you know that? Jesus came to serve you. Have, you. have you received his service? Have you received his healing? Or are you so eager to serve others? They say, I, I, I got this. I don't need help. I'm here to help other people. If you've never been served, you can't serve others. Can you admit your own spiritual neediness? Can you admit... That God, that, that we need help. One of the ways you know the blind man is on the right path is that he gets his request answered. Jesus heals his eyes. He can have eyes to see. And he says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Do we come to Jesus with empty hands? That's been the theme of Mark 10. It's empty hands saying, I, I, need, I need you, Jesus. I need you to heal me. The other way you know that this man, this blind man was on the right path, now a former blind man, I guess, is that after he is healed, do you hear what he does? Verse 52, it says, Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, that is Jesus, on his way. We've been tracking with Jesus in the second half of the Gospel of Mark. Where is he headed? He's headed to Jerusalem. And what's going to happen when he gets there? He's going to be killed. The picture here is that this blind man knows what the rich man last week didn't know. You drop everything and you follow him. He's the one who heals. He's the one who changes. And when he changes you, when he serves you, you drop everything and you follow him. That's one of the ways you know he's on the right track. This man did not just say, okay, I got what I needed. I'll see you later. No, he picks up, he drops everything he's got and he follows Jesus. When the blind man's following Jesus, he's not following him first to glory. He's following him to suffering. He's following him to the cross. That's exactly what a true disciple does. Takes up his cross and follows Jesus. If you see Jesus for who he is, and you see yourself for who you are, then you'll receive Jesus. You'll be healed by Jesus, and it changes everything. And if you've been changed, then you can respond to his invitation. So I hope you can see a suffering and serving son of man. I hope you can see that we need to be served, our spiritual neediness. And if so, then I hope you'll hear, you'll see this invitation to, excuse me, to follow the Son of Man. See our invitation to follow the Son of Man. Make sure you know where He's going. Make sure you know where He's going. But if you know where He's going, He's invited you to follow Him. Count the cost. 
but leave everything. Pick up your cross and follow him. That's what Jesus has invited this, this blind man to do. It's what he invited his disciples to do, and they're still trying to figure it out. It's what he invited the rich man to do that we saw last week. He was unwilling to do it. Sell everything. Come and follow me. Follow Jesus means treasuring him above all. It means he has no equals, no rivals in your heart. You love him. You follow him with all that you have. It's not Jesus and everything. It's Jesus above all. It's costly, but it is a greater treasure than anything else the world could offer you. One of the most fascinating parts of this passage is, to me is in this discussion about a cup and baptism. You read that and say, what's the deal with the cups? Why do you got a cup? Who wants to drink out of the cup? I don't understand. What's baptism have to do with anything? I thought we were being crucified. Right? Verse 38, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, talking to his disciples. They had asked to sit at his right and left hand. Interestingly, we can back up from the Gospel of Mark and go, wait a second. At Jesus' highest moment of glory up to that point in, in Jesus' story, he is crucified on a cross. And there is somebody on his right and in his left hand. Two other criminals who are being crucified. James and John say, can we go to your right and left hand? <laughs> Jesus is like, you don't know what you're asking. But he tells them, Jesus tells James and John, you actually will go through the same thing I'm going to go through. They don't know it yet. They, they still don't have eyes to see. They don't have, fully understand what's going on. But this picture of a cup and baptism are, 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 are frequent Old Testament and all throughout the Bible, images for God's wrath and judgment. Isaiah 51, 17 speaks of the cup of the wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15, take from my, cup, uh, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. Jesus would, would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14, 36, remove this cup from me. It's a symbol of the judgment, the wrath of God. Jesus says, can you, can you take on this, this, the weight I'm bearing? The answer is No. But these guys, after Jesus has done, after Jesus has taken on the wrath, they too will go through a life of suffering. They too will be baptized into hardship. They too will walk a road of, uh, uh, of suffering. But it's not a, a suffering that heals, it's a suffering that sanctifies. Jesus saves, and now through hardships we follow him into a path of being sanctified. The same image comes up in Romans chapter 6 when uh, Paul writes, Do not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, who were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Jesus is asking James and John, Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to die? Are you willing to go through the things I'm going through? They think they are. They're not quite ready, but they will be. After the resurrection, after receiving the Holy Spirit, and they too will follow in that path. They don't know what they're asking. But Jesus says, this is where you're headed. You see, one of the symbols, one of the, the signs uh, of a true disciple is somebody who's willing to go through hard things, willing to suffer, willing to, to endure hardship for the sake of loving your neighbor. We can come as Christians and we can get things out of order. We can say, yeah, I heard about Jesus and I'm going to do what he did. And we never admit our need. You have to admit the need first. You have to be willing to be served first. You have to be willing for Jesus to come and him, He transform you. He changed your heart. If you try to earn your way to being like Jesus by just imitating His deeds, it's just moralism. It never changes your heart. All the external things could look as pretty as they want. If Jesus has not changed your heart, then you don't know Him. But if you have admitted your need, then it will change the way you act. Those who have been saved will serve and love their neighbor. Those who have been served by Jesus 
will give their life, will serve other people. So I think JFK was quoting Jesus after all. We are meant to serve our neighbors before they serve us. Jesus is telling us something deep about all true love. Jesus had said that the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Which is another way of saying Jesus came to show love. You know that all true love is self-sacrificing? There may be some people in your life that every time you spend with them, it's all, you get all filled up. It just, it just always fills you up. But just spend time with them long enough, and eventually the pouring has got to go the other direction, right? They need you as much as you need them. If you have a friend, there are going to be times that you're going to carry their burdens. It's going to be hard. It's going to be, you're going to have to make a sacrifice. If you want to keep a true friend, it's going to cost you something. All true love is self-sacrificing. Or take parenting. If you're a parent, you know that to be a parent, an anywhere remotely decent parent, is to make sacrifices. And I was reading a little bit more about this week and just reminded of the grace of that. Because you know what? It, once you have a child, somebody's going to make a sacrifice. Either you or the child. Either you are going to pour out your life for the sake of loving this child, or you're going to make the child carry the burdens. You're not going to, if you don't sacrifice yourself for them, they're going to spend the rest of their life trying to overcome that neglect. Somebody's going to make a sacrifice as a parent in a child relationship. And as a parent, it is a joy and a privilege to say, I'll take it. I'll take the sacrifice. I'll take the sleepless nights. I'll take the pain. I'll take the worry and the anxiety and the prayers and the struggle, right? I'll take it because I don't want you to have to face it. That is being like Christ. That is a, a ransom paid. Not to save, only Jesus can save, but to show him a savior. All true love is self-sacrificing. And if you have received the love of God, if you have received the self-sacrificing love of God, then that's what pours out of you. You can pour it out to others. Are you motivated by what Christ has done? Has Christ changed your life in such a way that you can sacrifice on behalf of other people? That, that, that concept of self-sacrificing love, it is, it, there is something deeply woven in the fabric of our universe that, that even non-believers, even un-Christians, see the beauty of it. J.K. Rowling, who I'm, you know, I don't study her much, but I'm pretty sure not a Christian, wrote this, I think, multiple times through her, through her Harry Potter series. The first one, the, the very first uh, of that book, J.K. Uh, Harry Potter is asking Dumbledore at the very end about why uh, the, the evil character in that, that story, Voldemort, couldn't touch his face. As you've seen that movie, you read the books, whatever. When, when, the, when Voldemort touches Harry's face, his hand disintegrates. He, he can't touch him. And so Harry comes to, to Dumbledore and asks about it. And Dumbledore explained why that was. He said, your mother died to save you, Harry. She died so that he didn't have to. He says, if there's one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it's love. He didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's love for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign. To have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved is gone, will give us some kind of protection forever. You can hear in her who doesn't know Jesus, this desire, this, this deep yearning, self-sacrificing love is so beautiful. 
We know the, the ultimate source of that. Christ himself, who sacrificed everything. And if you've received that love, it makes you a sacrificial person. It leads you to be able to serve and meet the needs of those around you above your own. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it looks like to pick up your cross. That's what it looks like to be willing to suffer for the sake of those around you. Whether it be your kids, whether it be your coworkers, whether it be your friends, following Jesus means loving like Jesus and all true love is self-sacrificing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for granting so many in this room eyes to see you. God, as I have the privilege of walking through life with so many that are here, I see the way you have given them eyes to see. You have given them a heart that knows you, a heart that has been transformed by your self-sacrificing love. You have healed their eyes. You've given them a, a, an opportunity to know you for who you are. And God, one of the ways I know it is I see the way they serve. I see the way the people of Infinity Church love their neighbor. What a blessing it is to see the sacrifices they make. Many that are gone without see, being seen. What a privilege that is to be in a community of faith like this. Father, I pray for any who do not know the love of you, our God, our Savior. God, I pray that you would open our eyes today, that you'd give us eyes to see, eyes of faith. We can see the ransom you've paid in our place and that we can respond in humility and respond in obedience of faith. Lord, come today. Work in our hearts in a way that only you can. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.